chapter 17. We just had a first mission team come back from Utah. The Bevels are here. Carrie and Shannon and their family are still in route. They had a car problem yesterday in, I think, Yellowstone. Uh, their water pump burst. I know nothing of cars, so to speak of this is to just reveal ignorance. Uh, he sent a picture of Old Faithful uh, on my text. I said, is that your car? Uh, he didn't like that. So, and I knew he wouldn't, but it was worth it. So, but in that regard, we, again, are having lunch on the grounds next Sunday. There will be no Sunday evening service. Uh, it's in the bulletin that we are having a service, but there will be no Sunday evening service and please, uh, bring a dish. If you forget to bring a dish, it's okay to still attend. The meat will be provided and the cups and plates. And what you would typically eat out, what you would spend to eat out, we're going to put in a, a bucket and that money will be helped to minimize the cost for mission teams. We're going to be going to Utah and South Africa and, and uh, no one is getting their trips for free. But this can help minimize the cost because it is an expensive endeavor and so you say, I don't eat out on Sunday. Well, at some point you eat out. And so whatever you would spend to eat out, perhaps you could put into that, uh, that fund. And we're going to try to make this a tradition. We'll see how next week works. Be praying about next week. I'm praying I have a certain amount in my mind that I would love to see us raise. And I would love to see that every time on the fifth Sunday. Well, if you would look with me in 17... Chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, or 1 to 6, rather. Uh, this is the second part of our little series on this passage. It says, He said to His disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult words, but these are crucial words. For a body to glorify you. For a community of faith to honor you in their interactions with one another. Give us ears to hear today. Increase our faith. Sanctify our church through the preaching of the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ravi Zacharias, in a book that he has written recently called The Grand Weaver, tells the story of a young woman who came up to him after a conference. The woman was in her 20s, and she was really just overcome with bitterness towards her father. She had not seen her father since she was a very young girl, some 20 years ago. And what had happened was her parents were raised in a culture, a country where they arranged marriages. And so her father married her mother through an arranged marriage, and from the very beginning, he was jealous of her looks. Uh, she was a very beautiful woman, and so she received compliments everywhere they went. And he was less than attractive, and he did not receive those compliments. But So he became very jealous of his wife. And in time, 
he became paranoid that some other man was going to take her away. And so one day, he devised a plan. He came home from work. He was speaking to her in their bedroom. And he pulled out a bottle of acid. And he threw that bottle of acid into her face. And so immediately, she goes from being this beautiful woman to having an acid-scarred face. Well, this daughter... And this wife had not seen this man since that day. That had been some 20 years earlier. And here she was just overcome with bitterness towards her father. But that's not the end of the story. Because just a few days prior to this conversation with Ravi Zacharias, this man had contacted his ex-wife, her mother. And he was repentant. He was dying of cancer and he was in his last days. And this repentant man was asking his ex-wife to come be by his side um, as he died. And this woman was a committed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the mother that is. A woman who had committed her life to Christ. A woman who had, who had brought, been brought to the place where she recognized that she was a sinner. And that God must judge sin because he is just and he is good and he is holy and righteous. But that this God had judged her sin in his son, Jesus, the substitute. And she had confessed Christ as Lord. She had committed her life to Christ. And now this man wants her to forgive him and be by his side. And she was wanting the blessing of her children. And that's where this young girl was struggling. You know, at this, any time we hear something like this, it's it's always surprising to us. Because when someone offers full forgiveness for a very grievous offense like that, it it really um, is countercultural and even counter to the way we think about things. And typically when people are able to forgive someone of a, of a grievous offense like this woman uh, had experienced, it's usually because they themselves know what it means to be forgiven. And this woman had uh, committed her life to Christ and she understood what it meant to be forgiven. What this woman was offering her enemy, her ex-husband, was the very thing that she herself had experienced from Jesus. She understood that she was a debtor, that she was a sinner, and that God had forgiven her through Jesus, and now she wanted to be an instrument of that forgiveness. Consequently, she had the faith to forgive. That's really what this text is all about, this passage. Now, at this point, as we saw last time, Jesus is getting ready for his crucifixion. He's just weeks out. And he knows that he must prepare his disciples for that event. But even more so, he must prepare his disciples for when he will no longer be present with them. He is preparing his disciples to be ministers in his place. To minister in his place. And in order for them to minister in his place... They must understand the cross life because that was the life he lived. 
The life of a disciple is the life of the cross. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Nothing less is discipleship. Nothing else is a disciple. And so he's preparing them. And in chapter 17, he gives us some essentials for living the cross life. And the first essential for living the cross life is learning how to deal and take sin seriously in the community of faith. Now, last time we said that the disciple um, must take sin in himself seriously in order to live this kind of life. What does that mean? That means that a disciple refuses to be a scandalon, uh, refuses to be one through whom temptation to sin comes. Now, in this particular passage, we're not talking just about grievous or just, you know, really heinous sin. We're talking about sin within the community of faith, sin among religious people. And essentially, that kind of temptation to sin comes through loveless self-absorbed religion. But we also saw that the disciple must take sin in his brothers and sisters seriously as well. We have a mutual accountability to one another. We are called to rebuke one another when we have sin in the body that belittles the name of God or causes harm in the body. Well, in the second part of this passage today, we also see that the disciple must take the forgiveness of sins seriously as well. Note with me in verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. We addressed that last week. But notice, if he repents, forgive him. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that forgiveness occurs properly... Only when certain conditions are met. Now, what are the conditions? He says, if your brother repents, you forgive him. Jesus is saying here that repentance is a condition for forgiveness. Now, what is repentance? Repentance means more than just a change of mind. We are holistic beings. Whatever we understand and believe in our minds will affect our wills and our affections. And so repentance, in a sense, is recognizing that you have sinned against God and you've sinned against your brother or sister. And so there's a contrition there. Uh, You hate this sin. You are sorrowful over this sin. It grieves you that you have sinned. You mourn over your sin. That's contrition. Secondly, you confess that sin. You confess it to, the, to God and you confess it to the person for whom you have sinned against. So confession, contrition, confession, and then thirdly, change. Change means you turn from that sin. It's a change in behavior. That's what repentance is. And Jesus is saying in this passage, we, we forgive upon the condition of forgiveness or, or repentance. Now that shouldn't surprise us. Because the ground of our forgiveness is God's forgiveness of us. Does God forgive us unconditionally? No. If God forgave unconditionally, every single person who's ever lived would be forgiven. And every single person who ever lived would go to heaven. 
And that's absolutely not the case. The condition for forgiveness before God is what? Repentance. In fact, Paul will tell us in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as in Christ God forgave you. And so the model for our forgiveness of others is God's forgiveness of us. And God forgives us through Christ, but the condition on our part is that we must repent of our sins and embrace Jesus Christ and what God has provided in Christ. Now, for sure, everyone should have an attitude of grace and love and a willingness to forgive all people. We're commanded to love our enemies. We're, pray, we're, we're commanded to pray for our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. We're not to take revenge on our enemies. Repay no one evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. As much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. We are called not to be bitter. And yet, forgiveness, the complete transaction of forgiveness, is conditioned upon repentance. And so complete forgiveness can only take place when there is repentance. Indeed, when an offender is unrepentant, okay? There's really two stages, you could say, to forgiveness, a two-stage process. The first stage requires an attitude of forgiveness, and this is unconditional. And so you are willing to forgive. You are loving the offender, even in his or her unrepentance. You're loving that person. You're praying for that person. You are doing good to that person. Okay? And so that's the first stage. But then there's a second stage, the actual transaction of forgiveness. Whereas the first stage is unconditional, the second stage is conditioned upon repentance. The actual transgression or the transaction of forgiveness where you forgive the person who has repented. Now, what does it mean to forgive? Well, the word here, uh, forgiveness or forgive, uh, is the most common word for forgiveness in the Bible. And literally, it means to release from legal our moral obligation. To release from legal or moral obligation. Now that's a tough command. Especially when you've been hurt. And some of you here this morning have been deeply hurt by others. We've all been hurt by others. We live in a world of sinners. You have hurt others. Okay? And so this idea of releasing someone from legal Our moral obligation is a very difficult command. And the apostles get the point. Uh, They they get the point. And at this point, they have to interrupt Jesus. um, Because what Jesus is telling them goes beyond their capabilities. Notice in verse 4, though, he adds, And if he sins against you seven times in the day, So you have a person who sins against you, not necessarily the same sin, but he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times 
saying, I repent. You must forgive him. So you've got a person who has hurt you deeply, has broken your heart. And that person sins against you to the point of breaking your heart seven times in a day. And that person comes to you in repentance seven times in the day. You must forgive that person. Now, that has implications for the church. It has implications for the workplace. It has implications for marriages. That is a hard call. Now, there are other issues you have to take into account. For instance, if, what if the repentance is insincere? And what about the issues of accountability and church discipline? Well, the Bible addresses those as well. But here in this particular passage, Jesus is saying, be radical on forgiveness. You should be overflowing in forgiveness. And the apostles at this point realize how difficult this is. And that's why they respond <coughs> in verse 6, the way they do, or verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, if we're going to do what you're calling us to do, and keep in mind the entire passage is in order, first of all, we need faith if we're not going to be a scandal to others. We need faith if we're going to be able to have the courage to rebuke our brothers and sisters. That's a difficult deal, isn't it? Going up to brothers and sisters and rebuking them for their sins. We're going to need faith in order to forgive people who have wronged us, forgive people who have broken our hearts, They say, increase our faith. Now note, this may be the smartest thing the disciples ever did prior to the resurrection. They don't ask Jesus to increase their love. Uh, They don't ask Jesus to increase their tolerance for others or their ability to be patient with others or their compassion. They ask him to increase their faith. Because what the disciples understand as... Uh, is this, in order to do what God requires of us to do, requires spirit-wrought faith. Faith is the muscle for everything. If you're not loving people, if you're not loving God, if you're not loving His Word, if you're not worshiping Him privately, corporately, the problem at the rudimentary level is a lack of faith. Faith, hope, and love travel together. But faith produces love and hope. And so they tell Jesus to increase their faith. But it's not just faith in faith. It's faith in an object. And that object is a person. And that person is Jesus. Now at this point, they don't fully understand all that he's going to do. They don't fully understand that he's going to uh, die on the cross for sinners. They don't understand anything here about the resurrection. But Luke is writing after the fact. He is writing after the cross. He's writing after the resurrection. He's writing to people who understand the cross. They understand the resurrection. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we must... Or Luke is saying here is we must put our faith in Jesus. And in particular, his cross where he died for our sins. That is, as soon as we come across or come upon the topic of forgiveness, we aren't far from the heart of the gospel. It really is key uh, to the gospel. 
Because it's only in understanding the cross that we have any satisfactory uh, understanding or answer for the problem of unforgivable sin. The cross acknowledges the sinfulness of sin, doesn't it? The cross is the event in history that acknowledges that sin is sinful and grievous. Because it comes, sin comes under the wrath and the judgment of God at the cross. And so the cross is the event that recognizes the sinfulness of sin. And in the cross, God atones for our sins, providing a way for forgiveness. And so the way we learn to forgive is by contemplating the cross. It really is the key to understanding how to forgive. When we understand that it was sinners like us that nailed Jesus to the cross and that that sin from the human level is unforgivable. And yet Jesus in his grace has forgiven us The fact that our sin against Jesus, our sin against God is an infinite wickedness. The reason it's infinite is because the object, the object of our sin is infinite in his holiness. When we understand our sin is infinitely wicked and and grievous to the heart of God, then we begin to understand forgiveness. All other sins against us pale in comparison to the sin we committed against God in Jesus Christ. And so the cross is the key to understanding how to forgive. And so the apostles are asking for the right thing. Increase our faith. But it's interesting how Jesus responds to that request. Notice in verse 6. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed... You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, there's another occasion where Jesus talks about moving mountains by faith. Mark chapter 11. On this occasion, he's not talking about mountains. So it almost seems more obtainable that the idea of uprooting a tree, a mulberry tree, the idea of planting a tree in the sea. But keep in mind, in that day, the mulberry tree was considered the most firmly rooted of all trees. In fact, rabbis in the first century write about these mulberry trees, and they would say that a mulberry tree that was firmly rooted would, would remain firmly re- rooted for 600 years. And so essentially what Jesus is saying, that by faith... God can do the impossible with your broken and bitter heart. He can enable you. He can empower you to forgive people who have sinned against you. He's not saying here that faith gives you the ability to do trivial things like uproot trees. He's not saying that faith gives you the ability to be Superman or to have superhero gifts. He's not saying that faith allows you to actualize uh, your purposes for your life like they often teach in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. What he is saying here is that what you can't do, and that is forgive those who've hurt you and harmed you, God can. 
as you are united to Jesus by faith. And that's the mark of a disciple. One who takes the forgiveness of sins seriously. Now, if that is the case, there is nothing more crucial for us to know and understand than what forgiveness is. And the way I want to close today's message is by looking at that. But before we look at what true forgiveness is, because I think there's some misunderstandings there, I think we need to first of all consider what forgiveness is not. As I want to share with you some untruths about forgiveness. Because having a perverted understanding of forgiveness is going to cripple your ability to forgive. The first untruth about forgiveness is that forgiving someone does not mean forgetting. You've heard it. To forgive is to forget. Well, God doesn't forget when He forgives. That's impossible. God is omniscient. And furthermore, it's psychologically impossible to forget something when you have been seriously hurt. Now, there is a text that says in Jeremiah 31, 34... God forgives our iniquities and remembers our sins no more. That's the verse that people use to say, see, God forgets our iniquities. God forgets our sins. Well, that's a metaphor. How can God forget something? He is omniscient. He remembers everything that's ever happened. That is a metaphor to describe the expiation of our guilt. In other words, when you come to God in Christ, just like the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, where they they take the sins of the people and they transfer them to the scapegoat, and then they cast the scapegoat out into the wilderness to be seen and remembered no more, when God forgives us, He does not bring our sins up before us again. And so forgiving is not forgetting. If you think that's the case, you'll never be able to forgive someone who's really hurt you and harmed you. Secondly, forgiving someone doesn't mean you no longer feel the pain of the offense. I'm convinced that's the reason many people refuse to believe. They know they just cannot overcome the pain of the offense. It's too hurtful. Their hearts have been broken. And they don't want to be insincere in their forgiveness, and so they refuse to forgive. Third, forgiving someone who has sinned against you does not mean you stop longing for justice. Justice is good. That's why when we say that God is a just God and must penalize sin, that's just a revelation of who He is as a good God. It's good when God is just. So forgiving someone does not mean you stop longing for justice. You just recognize that vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. In other words, to forgive someone is not to minimize their sin. We do long for justice because justice is right and good. Fourth, forgiveness doesn't mean you're to make it easy For the offender to hurt you again. Forgiving someone does not mean you aid and abed their crime. You establish boundaries. You do not make it easy for someone to hurt you again. Fifth, forgiveness is rarely a one-time event. Now, 
when we are justified before God, that's a one-time event. And when we are justified by Him, we are, we are forgiven. We are pardoned of our sins. And yet, even in the Christian life, we, we confess our sins before the Lord constantly. 1 John 1, 9, and He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and restore the broken fellowship that comes through sin. But for us... It may be a decision you have to make every day, especially if you've been grievously hurt. You make that decision, that determination every day to forgive that person once again. Six, forgiveness will not lead the offender to become more entrenched in his sin. Have you ever thought that? If I forgive this person, I'm just essentially validating their crime. I'm validating their sin against me. But forgiveness does not lead someone to be entrenched in his sin. The opposite is true. When you forgive a repentant sinner, when you forgive someone who has repented of their sins, who's broken over their sins, what forgiveness will do is melt them. Forgiveness will stir their affections and their heart. And what will actually happen is this person will grow in their love for you. Seventh, forgiveness does not lead the offender to take advantage of the situation. Again, the opposite is true. When you fail to forgive someone who's repented of their offense against you, what you end up doing is you distance yourself from that person and you go out of your way to avoid that person. You become embittered at that person. And essentially what's happening is that person is controlling you. That person is controlling you by your bitterness. I've heard someone say that bitterness is drinking poison and waiting for someone else to die. Actually, that poison is taking hold of your heart and is controlling you. Eighth, forgiveness is not unconditional. Forgiveness is not unconditional. Love is. You're to love that person. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for that person. We're to do good to that person. But love, or forgiveness is not unconditional. It's conditioned upon repentance. And then ninth. And this is important. Forgiveness will not make you a Christian. Forgiveness will not make you a Christian. You can forgive the worst offense that's ever been committed against a person. And that will not make you a Christian. Salvation is all of grace. There is nothing you can do to earn any favor with God. I could spend the rest of my life reading my Bible as I'm feeding the hungry and giving water to the poor and pronouncing the gospel to the lost. I could spend every waking moment doing that and I haven't earned one stitch of favor with God. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is what God does. The gospel is not good advice to people who need to help themselves. The gospel is good news to sinners who cannot help themselves. Now keep in mind, if I, let's think of it in this way. If I have some apples in my hand, that doesn't make me an apple tree. Now apple trees... Produce apples, right? Apple trees bear apples. 
But having apples in my hands does not make me an apple tree. If I quack like a duck and waddle like a duck, that doesn't make me a duck. Now, ducks quack and they waddle. If I say roll tide, that doesn't make me an Alabama alumni. But Alabama alumni say roll tide. If I forgive someone, that doesn't make me a Christian. But Christians forgive. And that brings us to the truths about forgiveness. And we'll close here. Ten truths about forgiveness. We'll get through these quickly. Number one, I'm always hesitant to give you a list of ten because you're looking at your watch at this point. We're going to go through this really quickly. I'm going to spend about 15 minutes on each one and we'll be out of here. First of all, forgiving someone does not make you a Christian. But those who are unwilling and unable to forgive should fear for their salvation. Because as I said, an apple tree bears fruit. And, and I've said, as I've said this before, forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. So what you're saying is this offense is too great. And by saying that, you're saying this offense is greater than the offense against God. Who is willing to forgive repentant sinners. And that's what the whole parable in Matthew 18 is about. The unforgiving servant. If we can't forgive others. It just may be. That we haven't been forgiven ourselves. Because when we are forgiven. Our hearts are melted. By the grace and mercy. Of the one who's forgiven us. It's not hardened. It's melted. Secondly. You should be motivated, motivated to forgive so that you can know maximum happiness. Now, ultimately, the, the, the most fundamental reason we forgive someone is the glory of God. But do you realize the glory of God and your happiness are not in competition with one another? When you live for the glory of God and when your actions are Christ-like, it actually maximizes your happiness because that's the reason for which you were created. You were created to glorify God, which means you flourish as a human being when you glorify Him. And so think of it this way. When I do what is right, and what is right? The glory of God. When I do what is right, then I will do what is best for me. And what is best for me? My happiness. So when I am honoring and glorifying God, it actually maximizes my capacity to enjoy Him and to enjoy the created order. And so forgiveness is the means by which we maximize our happiness. Third. God expects believers to forgive others in the way that he forgives us. In the same way. That's what Ephesians 4.32 tells us. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ 
forgave us. Now, in that regard, what does it mean when God forgives us? I love this definition by Chris Bronze, who wrote a great book called Unpacking Forgiveness. And this is how he defines God's forgiveness of sinners. It's a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe. Now, what does it mean to believe? That means... Not just some kind of intellectual faith. That, like, I believe George Washington cut down the cherry tree. We talked about this Wednesday night with our children. Belief has three aspects to it. There's the cognition. That is, I believe something. I know something. What do I believe? I believe God is holy. And God stands over sin in judgment. I believe I'm a sinner. So I stand under the judgment of God. But I believe that this God who stands over me in judgment has provided a substitute in the Son. So there's this cognition aspect of saving belief. But there's also a conviction. There's a conviction that this is true. And that if I do not embrace His provision, that is the Son who took the wrath, I'm going to be judged. And I'm going to spend eternity in a place the Bible describes as hell, eternal torment. And then there's the commitment. The commitment to flee to Christ. To flee to the one who has taken the judgment for me. And so saving faith is cognition, it's conviction, and it's commitment. That's a part of this definition. And he says... In this definition, he says, those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, that is the father, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. There's consequences to our sin, even when we're forgiven of our sin. We'll come back to that. So God expects us to uh, to forgive just like he has forgiven us. And that brings us to the fourth point. In this regard, God in Christ forgives us by absorbing in himself the destructive consequences of our sin against him. Sin must be judged and God the Father absorbs in himself the consequences of that sin by judging the Son of God in our place. In other words, forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is always costly. If you forgive someone who's hurt you, you're absorbing the debt. Fifthly, God forgave us in Christ by canceling the debt we owed him. He canceled it. He'll never bring it up again. Now, when he forgave you, what sins did did he forgive you of? Well, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins... He he died for every sin you had yet to commit. You weren't born yet. And so when he canceled your debt, he canceled the debt of your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. Now, there's a couple of implications in that for us as we forgive others. I will not dwell on this incident. This person has sinned against me. He's repented, and I am forgiving this person. Therefore, I will not dwell on this incident. Secondly, I will not talk to others about this incident. That's not true forgiveness. 
Because remember, our forgiveness is to be like God's forgiveness of us. Six, forgiving others as God has forgiven us means we refuse to be vigilantes. That is, if I've forgiven someone, I'm not going to give them the silent treatment. I'm not going to avoid them. I'm not going to slander them. There's no more vengeance. Debt has been paid in full. Seventh, forgiveness signals that whatever offense has been committed against me, it pales in comparison to the sin I committed against an infinitely holy God. And the the opposite is the case as well. When I refuse to forgive someone, I am saying the sin you've committed against me is greater than the sin I committed against God. Number eight, while forgiveness is a quick decision, the restoration of trust normally takes time proportionate to the seriousness of the offense. So you forgive someone, that doesn't mean the the trust is restored. Trust has to be earned, right? Someone lies to you, someone betrays you, you, you can forgive them if they're repentant. And yet... It's going to take time to earn that trust. In other words, there's consequences to sin, even when there's forgiveness. A classic case is David. Psalm 51, Psalm 32 are great psalms of forgiveness, and yet David lost a whole lot, even as God forgave him. There were grievous consequences to his sin. Number nine, forgiving others as God has forgiven us means... That we do good to that person rather than evil. Repay no one evil for evil. But have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. And I have learned this. When someone has hurt me, and I have... Determined to forgive that person because I have no choice. That person has repented. I forgive him. The best way. The best way I can overcome the hurt is to love him. To love her. To be tangible. To serve that person. That goes against everything we are because we're sinners. But that's God's way. That's God's means of overcoming the hurt. And then finally... God forgave us in Christ by reconciling us to himself, by restoring the relationship that our sin had ruined. In other words, forgiveness has as its goal reconciliation. The relationship is harmed by the sin, and so there is reconciliation. That doesn't mean you're best friends with that person. That doesn't mean that you become kindred spirits. But there's reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself and gave to us what? The the ministry of reconciliation. That's the goal of forgiveness. You know, the story is told of a Zulu chief 
whose wife went to a camp meeting, a Christian camp meeting back in the day when they would have these on the plains. And she was gloriously converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she came back and was different. But her chief husband was incensed by this new religion she had embraced. And so he told her, he said, you cannot go back to that camp meeting. But she couldn't help herself. She was melted and she had this new love for Christ. She, she, she beheld his glory. And so she went back to the meeting and the chief found out about it. So he went to the meeting, he found her and he grabbed her and he, he dragged her outside the village. And he beat her to the point of death. In fact, that was his goal. She was bleeding, she could barely breathe. And he left her there to die. Well, in a few hours, she, he wanted to check just to make sure she was dead. And so when he went to check on his dying wife, she was still alive, but she was gasping for her last breaths. Her eyes were closed. He kicked her and he said, what can your Jesus do for you now? And with her eyes still closed, gasping for breath, she said... He can help me forgive you. And that's what this text is teaching us. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a disciple, you have to live the cross life. And the cross life involves taking sin seriously. You take it seriously in yourself. You take it seriously with your brothers and sisters. But you also take the forgiveness of sins seriously. But if you want to understand forgiveness, you've got to look to me. And in particular, the cross I'm going to bear so that God can forgive you. And when you understand that, it enables you, it empowers you, it provokes you to forgive those who have hurt you. And it's very likely that in a a church this size, there are people in this church who have hurt you. Jesus said you must forgive them. It may be that there are people in your family that you have just cut off contact with. Who've hurt you. If they've repented. You must forgive them. If they haven't repented. You love them. You pray for them. You do good to them. Take the sin seriously. Take the forgiveness of sin seriously. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning. And let me just say. An unbeliever is not a a second grade human being. You're not JV where all the Christians are varsity. The fact is. We're all unbelievers until we repent of our sins and come to Christ. Okay, that was all of us. And if you're not yet a Christian this morning, that is evidence that you have not taken your own sin seriously. The fact is the Bible teaches that God is going to judge sin. And it's an eternal judgment. Do you want to play with that? Do you really want to flirt with that? Very real possibility. Why don't you take your sin seriously today? By bringing it to the cross. Confessing it to the Lord. And confessing, Lord, I know I've sinned against you. I know you judge sin. But I know that you provided a substitute in your son Jesus. And the Bible says if you'll repent of your sins and embrace Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Let's pray.